You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. It's Lisa Birnbach. I took a class in early American literature my sophomore year of college. I'm not really sure why this period of literature interested me at all. Cotton Mather, Emerson, Hawthorne, Melville, Thoreau. Writers only an English major or a diehard outdoors person maybe would want to read. Every day, our class began with our professor intoning, this world clean fails me, still I yearn. That happens to be a line from a poem of Melville's called Clarelle. Did you know that he wrote poetry? I totally forgot. It was written in 1876, after the Civil War. I think about that sentence every single day. This world clean fails me, still I yearn. Especially now in the pandemic. Especially in chaos and solitary feelings. Will we ever get to a good old days again? Weren't we supposed to know when the good old days were over? You know, I think about 9-11. We were miserable for a long, long time and frightened. But eventually we smiled again, saw our loved ones, even flew on planes and took trips and enjoyed the rites of passage that humans get, that we're entitled to, that we expect, that we are lucky to have. And we also bade our loved ones goodbye after 9-11 with pain and heartbreak and sometimes incredulity. But for some, the good old days may have ended with Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Sandy or the tsunami in Japan or any of a number of natural disasters. Or the good old days ended when children and their teachers were shot at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012 or at the Boston Marathon finish line in 2013, or at the Pulse nightclub that horrible night in 2016, or when Trump was inaugurated in 2017, or when the Parkland High School shooting happened on Valentine's Day 2018, or when George Floyd was killed for no reason by brutal cops a few months ago. If you were directly affected by heedless violence, you probably haven't had a good old day ever since. My thoughts are with you, and thoughts aren't enough, I know. We know that. Besides being active and trying to help those in need, the only other thing I've found to really soothe me is fiction. If you get involved in a compelling book, you tacitly agree to follow the author wherever he or she or they leads you. You have nothing to do but follow. They've made all the choices. You just get to roll. My guest this week is a novelist. It's Daphne Merkin. She's famous for her essays as well as her novels. Her new book is 22 Minutes of Unconditional Love. It is a novel that gave me respite all the days I read it. We used to know one another in college, and I haven't actually talked to her since. So this is this is cool. And uh, I think we had a great conversation. I think you'll enjoy her. In the meantime, here are my five things that made life better this week. My friend Shelley's sour cherry pie. It was made of the end of the season crop and it had the most gorgeous lattice pattern crust I have seen. And her husband, Dennis, made a fantastic roast chicken, and we ate it in a secret garden in Soho with candles and distance. It was really 
special. Number two, my mother's birthday dinner. She turned 90. I think it's fair to say she looks 80. We took her out for two different dinners last week. I know this world clean fails her, but still, she goes to the beauty parlor, and that's a good thing. Number three, my exhibits. They're all doing exciting things. You heard from one last week. They're making their way in their own careers, independent and creative, and not with anybody's help. So that's pretty cool. I'm very proud of them. Number four, I'm turning a negative into a positive here. My feet and I have come to an understanding that I will not be wearing high heels very much, if at all. I wore sandals with heels to my mother's birthday dinner, and my left foot was really not happy about it. It was a bummer, but flats are so comfortable. Number five, Dr. Fauci. Stay safe, everyone. My friend Sylvia sent me a note saying that Dr. Fauci may be stressed, and a friend of hers who knows something about this sent him a thank you note for his great service to this country. I will do the same. If you're interested, I have his address on my website, and you can write Dr. Fauci and tell him how much you appreciate him. Coming up, novelist Daphne Merkin. Don't go away. It's Lisa Birnbach. Welcome to Five Things That Make Life Better. My guest today is the novelist and critic Daphne Merkin, who I last saw (laughs) in the 70s when we were both students at Barnard College. Right. And the occasion that is bringing us back together, our college reunion, is her new novel, 22 Minutes of Unconditional Love, which has just been published by Farrar Strauss and Giroux. Welcome, Daphne. Hi, good to be here. You know, we both have done various things in publishing, but it was so remarkable to me watching your career all these years silently um, that um, you were kind of immediately a literary writer from your 20s. You didn't pass that kind of strange more flashy, contemporary, brandy stuff. Right. How did, how did you manage that? Well, one could ask, was that such a plus? What I mean, <laughs> I think partly it was my native somewhat seriousness mm-hmm. about literary things. Because I look back and think, how did I for years sit in this kind of basement-like apartment and write regular book reviews every other week for a tiny magazine called The New Leader. I wrote these this very serious up-to-the-minute book column, which required... I remember one afternoon I was sitting in that lower-level, sunless apartment on 79th mm-hmm. Street, and I was reading... 900 pages of Elizabeth Bowen's, the British writer, collected stories. I kind of loved reading them, but I thought, how did I end up doing this? (laughs) You know, sitting of an afternoon reading to write. Sorry, I don't know if that's... It's just just New York and the pandemic. I guess we're going to have to live with it. 
to write for a column that paid $50 and was read by a certain type of academic or literary person. I mean, eventually it was through Diana Trilling, Mm -hmm. who I guess had been reading it, that I was introduced to someone named Bill Yovanovitch and eventually went and worked in book publishing myself for six years. And then years later, in a way, began doing the kind of journalism that a lot of people start with. I mean, I would go for departures to Sweden to write up Hastings mattresses. Oh, wow. Uh Yeah. But while I was doing that, or I went and wrote about the Kardashians, or I wrote about Madonna, while I was doing that, I always continued writing my very literary pieces about Virginia Woolf or V.S. Naipaul. So in many ways, I think I had a high-low split before the split was named. Uh huh. I think the one route I didn't go was directly what you call journalistic. Right. It never occurred to me to go to journalism school. It just didn't. And to this day, I think I underrate with a few exceptions, or maybe I don't underrate them. Maybe it's accurate. I think a lot of journalists don't write well. Right. I mean, that's a, a large generalization that could be punctured in five minutes, but I'm never that struck by newspaper writing. It's funny, even a magazine like The New Yorker, where I was on staff for five or six years, I know everyone. I liked the Tina Brown New Yorker with its mixture of personal, literary, journalistic. The David Remnick version is much more journalistic. In some ways, I feel the world has too much journalism, too many pundits. That's not what you were asking me, but that's where I somehow ended up going. I still like what was called in the old days, Belletra, that whole tradition of personal... Essays, personal, yes. yes. Love that tradition. Okay, so you... You started out by being this serious young woman book critic. Yeah. You did things backwards, but very, very beautifully backwards, only according to, you know, trend. Because, yes, you do write for magazines. And honestly, if I see your byline, or I haven't picked up a magazine since (laughs) I haven't been to a newsstand in so long, but if I saw your name in an allure piece or a Vogue piece or a, a, you know, in in a table of contents, I would rush to it because I understood that it meant that you were trying to turn something light and frothy into something substantial. True. I, that, I think that's very well said. Like when you say allure, I think of I wrote a piece called Mad About Makeup, which I am. Mm-hmm. I love everything to do with makeup and how I try to make it into into more of a an essay about painting, like having an alternate way of being creative from writing. Ah, I see what you mean. Like creating a, a face on a canvas. Right. Somehow I managed to bring Virginia Woolf even into that piece, if I recall. Well, well you know, she did love Bruges. No, right. I'm kidding. <laughs> right. Well, but that's, you know, that's why a good editor asks you to write that essay and not someone who grew up as a publicist for Lancome, you know. Right. Right. And I think when you say journalism, a lot of it is bad. Number one, 
I guess I sort of consider myself a journalist. I did not go to journalism school. I went right to work. And I think in the universe in which I grew up, which believe it or not was, I went from college to the Village Voice. Right. There was a great snobbery and a bias against people who had a graduate degree in journalism because the Village Voice in those days, and of course it doesn't exist anymore, but really appreciated shoe leather and the school of going and knocking on doors and getting the story as opposed to learning about those same things. But yet, journalism now seems to have, at least in women's magazines, as they used to be called, and there are not too many of those anymore, but the line between promotion, PR, and actual reporting seems to have gotten very thin. Very. Certainly in the, I agree with you, in the women's magazines, and I don't think I meant to like disparage all journalism, but I, I, since I myself, to be honest, along with writing those literary pieces, I got my start doing real journalism at a publication called Seven Days. Oh, I loved Seven Days. Yeah. And that's where I started doing more reported, less they always had an essayistic tinge. Like I wrote a piece about Hedda Nussbaum and Joel Steinberg when that Mm -hmm. horror happened. Yes. I think I even remember that piece. Yeah. It was called the couple next door. And then I wrote a long piece about, I think it said, if you went out last night and no one saw you, do you exist? (laughs) Uh It was called the visible people. And Uh It was set at all those restaurants like Le Cirque and Mortimer's. Uh-huh. And I like society, my, yeah. But my I think my point about journalism is I once had lunch with Joe Lelyveld uh-huh. Times, and I thought some of what he said a journalist needed, I thought, well, of course you need that if you're going to be a journalist. You need some curiosity, although I think some journalists don't have that much curiosity. But in the, at the end of the day, You could be a very good reporter. You could be a very good interviewer. If you Mm -hmm. don't know how to structure it and narrate it well, it won't read well. I think I'm I'm saying something that sounds obvious, but in the end, it does come down to the writing Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. than the I mean, I think there are journalists who are phenomenal reporters. I can't think of who they are at this moment, but aren't such good writers. I think you need to be a really first-rate journalist, you need all of it. Like I read a book I keep thinking of and recommending to people. It's my idea of like journalist at its best. It's called Don't Speak or Don't Say about the IRA. Do you know that? Oh, wow. No, I don't. About the Irish Republican Army? It's about it and about a particular incident. Don't say a word, something like that. I'll look it up, yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was obviously remarkably well-researched, but the structure of the book fascinated me. Mm -hmm. It was almost done fictionally with one detail that begins and ends the book, which is a diaper pin. I'm not giving much away by saying it. Wow. Well, you know, I think... You started out, at least when I knew you, when you were 21 or 22, you were a serious student. You were very ready to to work hard and to follow in the footsteps of the writers that you uh, admired. And 
I would like to say that your new novel is also extremely well-written and well-plotted and exciting. And also, you have done something very unusual, which is you have broken into your own narrative a few times as the narrator sort of taking a break and having a conversation with the reader. Right. Uh, tell us why you did that. What? Right. How did you make that decision and why did you make that decision? I'm Maybe, oh, sorry, Daphne, I'm forgetting that I should have you sort of just give the elevator pitch for the story about Judith in 22 minutes. Yes, it's, um, I was going to say it's called 22 Minutes of Unconditional Love. Am I 100% sure what I meant by that title? (laughs) It originally was called One Second, The Discovery of Sex. I started it 30 years ago. Seriously? Seriously. Got a book contract from a press that no longer exists that was excellent called Poseidon Press. Right. I described it. I had written one novel already, Enchantment. Mm -hmm. I described it as a novel about erotic obsession where the woman would come out of the obsession not by throwing herself under a train like Anna Karenina or being hauled off to an institution like I think happens at the end of nine and a half weeks. Like how did you get out of a yeah. really bad choice Yeah, without going nuts or killing yourself or killing the man? Well, Judith, the protagonist of your story. Yeah becomes obsessed in a way that is so unhealthy. But like a lot of people in real life and people in fiction, when you only share your obsession with one friend or maybe two, yeah, you can, you know, you can fall apart. You don't have enough witnesses to your secret obsession, right? True. Very true. I think that this woman in her obsession with this man who is never nice to her, mm-hmm. She becomes kind of, she she regresses from her adult sensible right. self and turns into, you know, an unsheathed baby because Correct. she can't stop thinking about him. And then when he, well, I don't want to give it away. She just can't stop thinking about him. And the sex is unbelievable. Right. It's, it's the kind of sex that you, I guess she was so in his spell, in his thrall. Yes. That she was dreamy and zombie-like during the day. Right. She also, I did try to create a background where she, Judith, is a bit of a sexual naive. Mm-hmm. Not someone who's had tons of experience, even though... She's about to be 30. He represents for her, I think, the way some men can, the erotic principle. He takes her somewhere she hasn't been, namely explicitly or not so explicitly, depending on who the reader is and what they take from it. There is a scene where she is supposed to be having her first orgasm and before that, she sort of said she didn't know how much she believed in all this. 50% of women don't have orgasms. What are they talking about? And then she finally has the experience and she says she understands why 50% are lording it over the other 50%. Mm-hmm. And that this man, via a combination of, I 
a certain amount of sexual skill, a certain amount of instinct to violate her. Mm -hmm. And then there's the issue of what goes into the wish to submit, sexually submit, behaviorally submit in a woman who is, as you say, in the world at large, she's a forceful figure. I mean, she's meant to be or is a successful editor in book publishing. It matters to her. There are scenes in meetings where she plays a certain role. I mean, the world of book publishing is familiar to me since I was in it for five or six years. And I remember Bill Yovanovitch, who ran Harcourt Brace Yovanovitch, where I was first an editor and then associate publisher, once said to me, he thought women didn't put the workplace enough into their novels. Hmm. So I wanted her very much to have a job, a career, whatever you want to call it, that actually absorbed her. I mean, she wasn't an empty vessel right. waiting for Howard Rose. She was a someone. She was a fully realized person right. or a 90% realized right. person who had a good life until it was disrupted by this erotic, controlling lover of hers. Right, right. I think it added to her life a kind of, even in a negative way, a kind of glamour of that kind of insistent excitement. Mm -hmm. Not that he himself, Howard Rose, inhabited such, he was a lawyer, he didn't inhabit such a glamorous world. But I think the notion of like, oh, we're seeing each other again, impending excitement. Well, and in the beginning of the seduction, he said things that really aroused her or right. he'd call her and say, I need to see you or come over. I, I want to look at you or right. bend over. I need to see you. And all that we understand for someone who's been a successful, good girl, a good person who's abided by the rules, who's been waiting for a relationship that she could grow old in or go to the next level in. Right. We understand that this guy with a, a decent job and a decent good look becomes uh, her puppeteer. I mean, right. I, I saw it. I knew it was going to happen. You sort of worry for Judith, but you also exult with her because she's having this unbelievable good sex. Right. So why did you decide to what? interrupt the train that was right. <laughs> heading right. heading towards uh, orgasm and beyond. Well, I actually wrote those digressions years ago when I first wrote the book and then dropped the book because I was afraid of its explicitness. As you know, Lisa, I come from an Orthodox Jewish family. And even though I have written many things, I was actually afraid of what the women in the balcony uh -huh. would say about reading this book. Like, how could the daughter of the founder of Fifth Avenue Synagogue be described? First of all, most readers collapse the narrator with the person they know. It doesn't matter right. the novel. So they would be saying, how can Daphne Merkin be crawling across the floor? Not how can Judith Stone... Right. So that how can Daphne Merkin make her mother read about her crawling on the floor with that, no clothes on? Uh-huh. So I 
pulled the book back. I did this several times. I had several book contracts. I kept this. I actually wrote a piece in the Washington Post this past Sunday about my travails in writing the book and what it felt like to finally take it on right as Me Too was happening. Mm-hmm. It's sort of opposite message. But anyway, well, not opposite message, but... It's, so, it's, it's, it's complimentary, let's say. Right, right. It's funny that you, of all people, you would understand this, I think, since we met taking Michael Wood and Kenneth Oak. I, in the end, I also went on to graduate school at Columbia, and that was the height of deconstructionism, mm-hmm. semiotics, ultimately did not enormously interest me, except as a sort of ancillary sideways addition to reading traditionally. But yeah, way- yeah. I mean, I would love sometime yes. to have that conversation with you because my degree from Brown is in semiotics. Right. Uh, and, and because it was so of the moment, right. we all had to deconstruct. And right. there are lots of things about the study of semiology that I find interesting, but, right. not, the li- but not the literary no. d- uh, deconstruction. Other I things. Think- yeah. But I think a phrase that stayed with me or I made up, I can't remember anymore. I think it was a phrase, was perforate the text. Ah, yeah. And I loved the phrase, the idea of like taking a needle. That's how I thought of it. And going through a piece of fabric with it. Mm -hmm. So I think as a student of graduate school study of literature, I couldn't write, I mean, I wrote a straight autobiographical novel, which was my first one, which I will put in a pitch, it's just been reprinted. Uh-huh, Enchantment, uh, uh-huh. Enchantment. I was interested in sort of that meta thing, how do you write today when no one's reading, What? not going to questions like, what is a novel totally, but in that, in that area, who is the writer? What is the reader? Is the reader with you? Could the reader know you outside the worlds of the novel? So I would do things like, in, in these digressions, I would do things. The last one I wrote, I think, begins, so what's your sex life like? <laughs> um, and goes from there to discuss wedding dresses. And is yours yellowing in the closet? That kind of thing. But Daphne, it's... A very courageous thing to interrupt the momentum and say, hey, let's take a step back. I promise I won't, you know, this this digression won't take too long. Right. But who is Judith? And is and people think Judith is me and it's not me. And right. this is, it, it's very clever. It's very playful. At certain points you think, oh, please, no, let me just get back to exactly. the story. No, but I you're agree. creating a yearning as Judith is creating as Howard is creating Judith's yearning. And and what I would like to say about your book before we unfortunately have to go to your five things is that the 22 minutes of unconditional love I interpreted as probably the first 22 minutes that Judith and Howard had sex. Right. Or one of the early, when she had her first orgasm, because- That's it actually be, yeah okay that's what I, hope. I, I win I got it <laughs> um I I I want to um 
Yeah. You know, it's it's an exciting book. It's exciting to read a grown-up lady writing about sex from a woman's point of view. Right. I know you've done it many times, and I know that you also have written about your own life in very candid ways. And all I can say is I could never do it. So I also don't find myself particularly interesting, but for we readers are, and you do you do very interesting. I mean, you wrote the iconic book uh, of my time. I mean, there was no one on earth who hadn't read your preppy handbook. I know. Is that crazy, though? It was so, I looked on, I thought, my, this is a phenomenon. (laughs) It was, uh, I keep telling my children, it was a fluke. It was a fluke. And it helped that um, people read books in those days. Right. That always does help a bit. It does help. But you know what? I think also, Daphne, this summer, your book, I know it's terribly hard to publish a book now that isn't swept under the rug and hysteria of Trump and what's going on. So your book, 22 Minutes of Unconditional Love, gave me hours of distraction and interest. I was just, it was a kind of dark, but wonderful departure from, from my life. And, um, I'm so glad I read it and I'm so glad that uh, to talk to you after all these years. Oh, I am too. And maybe when life, when people can, when people can see one another, we could take a distance. I would too. I would too. Oh, by the way, I just have to say, while you were a senior in college, you wrote a letter to Woody Allen and he wrote back to you. Yes. And you showed me the letter and I could not believe that he wrote to you. Now he's, he's not, um, uh, he's, you know, he's been canceled, right? but you became friendly with him, right? I wrote him a poem in, mm-hmm. that I wrote in Kenneth Koch's class. Right. Which ended, you are the fu- our funny man. You mm-hmm. know you can be sad with me. Something like that. Right. And he wrote back and said if you x-rayed his heart, it would come out black. I remember that line. Wow. And then I think we sort of, he, event, he wrote, I, I think we dropped it. But then he wrote me a fan letter. Mm-hmm. Must have. Li- I mean, I'm pretty sure he linked me to the same person. When I wrote one of my very literary reviews for the New Republic, it's hard to envision this happening today. I wrote a review of a writer named Jane Bowles. Oh, right. He mm-hmm. wrote me a letter saying, I was such a good writer. Why was I wasting my time on book reviews? And I think suggested we meet and back and forth over the years, not frequently, just to bring this up a minute to the piece I wrote um, two summers ago or a summer ago, I ended up writing a piece about Sun Yi, Mm -hmm. his wife for for New York Magazine, that got a lot of whatever controversial attention. But just to bring it, since you remember that, Mm -hmm. I had written originally that we had been acquaintances for Ten, over four decades, which is what we were. We mm-hmm. weren't tight friends, 
He never invited me to his famous Christmas party. <laughs> I saw him like once or twice a year or something like that at most. And Sun Yi, I barely knew at all. But just to bring this around, that piece caused a lot of consternation at the magazine. I don't think I'd ever seen a response. I mean, I'd written about other conflicted, controversial issues. Like I wrote a long piece about the Kabbalah Center mm, of the mm-hmm. New York Times Magazine. There is no more litigious institution than the Kabbalah Center. Oh, funny. God knows what they threatened. But with this piece about Sun Yi, at the very end, I don't even know if this should, Ronan Farrow, who was trying to object to it the whole time, said that he had just found an essay that I wrote. It was called The Fame Lunches which is a title of a collection of essays of mine. And the Fame Lunches is about what I call my identification with wounded celebrities. Ah. And I said I was the perfect non-groupie for a non-celebrity like Woody Allen. Uh-huh. And it talked about one lunch we had. This was one lunch in, in, in years. So I then had to change because of Ronan saying I was a besotted fan I had to change it to saying we were friends for over four years, ah. which was, you know, ultimately used against the piece. But that's a byway I should not have straggled onto. Hmm. I'm just so surprised mm-hmm. that you remember way back. You were, time. you were, look, you were a senior and a big deal writer in the English department. I was a freshman. You were so nice to me. I remember liking you enormously, may I say. Well, thank you. I'm testing you now. If you remember this, you will get, God knows what you get. When I showed you the Woody Allen letter, do you by any chance remember the stationery? It was blue. No. Oh, it wasn't? I think it was brown paper, with that that era of brown paper bag stationery. Yeah, yeah, it was. Same in red, but maybe you're right. Well, I know it was a color. It wasn't yeah. white. No. And he commented on your last name. Yes. Okay. Correct. That's, pre- that's pretty good. Very. That's correct. pretty good. Okay. So- it is indeed I, it is indeed you. Yes. And you have a great list here of your five things. And I'd love you to share it because in this time of basic despair, and as everybody overuses the term, existential crisis, right. it's nice to turn to five things that, okay, they're just five, but if you think about them, maybe they give you a little smile. Okay. So your number one is? Number one, rather gluttonously, is Breyer's mint chocolate chip ice cream. Now, I think that's a great, that's a great one. And you know what? People, I I use food in my lists all the time. But it does, you know, if you know I'm going to treat myself to some of this as a reward for writing or just because it's hot out or whatever, right? Yeah. it's a carrot that you can yes. dangle over yourself. It's also, for me, such a perfect mixture. Like sometimes mint ice cream can taste too much like crest. Yes, exactly. Right. So this Briars is a toned down version of the mint. And I love dark chocolate and it has big dark chocolate pieces. And I have been known to say it's better than sex (laughs) maybe not sex with howard rose i was Um, just gonna say that it's better than 
day-to-day lovers, but not Howard Rose. Um, Number two. Number two, I would say, for me, I, I sound like a complete hedonist, lying in the sun, either by a pool or on the beach, near water, I once wrote a piece called Am I Tan Enough? <laughs> which is what Warren Beatty says in Bugs, Bugsby, Bugsy? Bugsy, yeah. He gets up from a tanning machine at the beginning of the movie. For me, being in the sun, which is true of, I think, a lot of people who suffer from depression. I mean, Anne Sexton wrote poems to lying in the, lying in the, to the whole act. Lying in the sun for me not when it's 102 degrees, but when there's, you know, 80s or a little wind or whatever, takes me out of myself in a way very little does. I wrote in this same piece that I prepare for the sun. I called it my idle form of gardening. I uh-huh. like to put the chair in the right place, have uh-huh. lotions, Um, whatever it is I need, I kind of keep moving the chair. Like if I miss a quarter inch of, and it's like a sundial, right? You move your, your chaise uh, by the sun. Yeah. And of course I'm not who could be ignorant of all the skin cancer risk warnings, Mm -hmm. which I, I think people choose their risks. Do you know what I mean? Some people, right. Some, some people, people scuba dive, some right. people jump out of planes, some right. people lie in the sun. I also like the way some people do, some people don't. I like to be a tan releases me from foundation, skin found, worrying about makeup. Uh-huh. Possibly falsely. I mean, I have no idea if there's, you know, I just feel I can go out and feel okay in myself. It does something to me internally in my skin aside from externally so it's 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 flattering i mean yes i think you know we grew up in an age where having a tan was not only flattering it was what you did in the summer i mean it made your legs look better it just you had like a burst of confidence when you were tan right rightly or wrongly very belatedly yeah Outdatedly, I still do. (laughs) Um, Um, Number three. I listen a lot to music of all sorts, have written about everyone ranging from Taylor Swift Mm -hmm. to the Counting Crows, that group that was once big, and Martin Wright. But I think someone I consider among the most gifted is a songwriter named Patty Griffin. So I wrote listening to Patty Griffin as one of my pleasures, one of my favorite things. Can you write to music or do you, you can? Some. Mm -hmm. If it's brand new to me, I can't. Right. Because then I'm paying. You need to listen. Yeah. So I listen to sort of a tried and true mixture of classical, of Bach and Handel. I like a lot and Telemann. And then my, what I call my pining women writers, Women songwriters mm-hmm. right. were always pining for the boy that got away, the, you know, that kind of Lucinda Williams. That uh-huh. could, but I find Patty Griffin, who I actually heard for the first time years ago when she opened for Lucinda Williams. Hmm. Incredibly wow. talented. So that I'm going to listen to her. Yeah. 
number four. I know I mentioned to you, Lisa, that I was debating between two, but I'm going with what I think. I wrote that moment in writing when I'm so absorbed, I forget about the time. Because mm-hmm. much of writing, I find to this day, I don't know, not a drag, but I have to push myself. I think here we go again, structure. Mm-hmm. Where do I put this paragraph? And right. how do I introduce this quote? So the times when I am so absorbed or enough into something that I look up and it's two hours have passed, it feels great because I find absorption is one of the things that, you know, makes life worth living, being very absorbed in something. Oh, absolutely. And because writing is hard, it does really get easier. No. Um, you you uh, are striving, one is striving for articulating something in a very precise and evocative way. It's being in the flow. Isn't that what people yes. call in the flow? It's, it's, the flow. it's breathtaking. You no, know, it's one of the great... But I said yesterday to someone, why does everyone want to write? I know. It makes no sense. No I think way. everyone wants to be a writer. I don't a think writer. they actually want to write. You're right. It's much more accurate. There's I some think, strange yeah. misplaced glamour about being a writer that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. I'm going to underscore that. It doesn't exist. We don't go to the left bank and all know one another and drink drink and dance. It just right. doesn't happen. Doesn't. Right. And my fifth one was laughing hysterically about something with my daughter that only the two of us would get. Isn't that the best? Yes. That's a great one. Your daughter is how old? My daughter is 30. She's 30. And does she live in New York? She not only lives in New York, she lives at home. Oh, how wonderful for you. Or mixed. (laughs) I haven't seen, I really haven't seen my kids. I have one child in New York, but two in California. So I haven't seen them in ages. So I'm very envious of people whose kids are nearby or or at home. And many, I mean, this pandemic is crazy for giving adult children and their parents a chance to get to know one another as adults. Right. Which has its ups and downs, as you would probably know. Yes. Yes. I mean, in many ways, since my daughter lived with me pre-pandemic, I love that she is here and in other ways i think we'll end up like gray gardens oh don't say that don't I, say that no. don't but say I'm, that big Edie. right, <laughs> right. that um, you know that we won't sooner or later she should be moving out and i think will be but um i enjoy her a lot there's something companionable about her. I mean, obviously, if we hated each other, this she wouldn't be living with me. Right, right. Yeah. Well, Daphne, it's been just a pleasure talking Thank to you. you. I'm very grateful that you published this book. Thank you. And that I read it. 
And I recommend it to our listeners, my listeners, your listeners. And this has been terrific. And to be continued, we have a lot to talk about. Okay. I need to say that you've been listening to five things that make life better. I'm your host, Lisa Birnbach. My guest today has been Daphne Merkin, author of 22 Minutes of Unconditional Love. It's published by Farrar Strauss. You can read more and look at the links to everything we talked about today at lisabernbach.com. This show is produced in New York by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Spressa Arucci, Michael Port, Sam Haft, Boko Haft. Wear a mask, act cool, be natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. 